Hello, this is Anthony Day, and welcome to the Sustainable Futures Show. In this episode, we ask, is CSR, Corporate Social Responsibility, dead? Maybe not, but VW has seriously damaged it. We read a postcard from George Osborne in China, and we round off with a conversation about the practicalities of renewables with James Spencer, MD of Portland Analytics. Well, is CSR dead? Are all those claims and promises made in those glossy reports just so much greenwash? In some cases, no. I can bring you examples of organisations which really do walk the talk and make corporate responsibility and sustainability an integral part of their businesses. I'll search some out for interviews in future episodes. On the other hand, CSR is clearly ignored and manipulated by some of the world's biggest companies. Who should we believe? The VW scandal must be one of the most reckless and cynical examples of greenwash ever. As you've no doubt heard, Volkswagen has shipped some 11 million diesel vehicles since 2009, fitted with a special engine management software. This software allows the car to detect when it's being tested and to modify the operation of the engine to give ultra-low emissions. In normal driving, the emissions will be some 40 times higher. The objective of this software was not only to circumvent the US testing standards, but also to stimulate sales by persuading drivers that their cars were environmentally friendly. The result of this is not only to deceive governments and consumers, but to pump millions of tonnes of extra emissions into the atmosphere. This isn't just about climate change, although the extra CO2 won't do it much good. It's about air quality. Cities in Britain and across the world are choked with emissions that are way above safe levels, and most of those emissions come from cars. Deaths from respiratory diseases are on the rise, but obviously VW management doesn't care about that. Where's their corporate social responsibility? Where's their conscience? Don't they have families? Forsprung durch Technik, progress through technology, has long been the proud motto of Audi, a member of the VW Group. It appears that all the time the people in Wolfsburg have been working away at Schwindel durch Technik. Having a wonderful time, wish you were here. Wish you would hear our request for lots of money. This week, Chancellor George Osborne and Amber Rudd, Secretary of State at the Department for Energy and Climate Change, have flown off to China to try and persuade the Chinese to finance the planned nuclear power station Hinkley C. Leaving aside the technical problems with the design and the litigation with the EU, operators EDF are desperate to find someone to share the £23.5 billion cost of construction. We now learn that the Chinese are being offered the opportunity to build another nuclear power plant in Essex, providing them with a show site for promoting nuclear sales in Europe in return for their commitment to Hinkley C. Not sure when we'll get a decision on this. Not sure what we'll do if the Chinese say no. Not sure what we'll do if they say yes while we wait for 10 years for the new stations to start generating. 
I suppose we could build some solar farms and install some wind turbines while we're waiting. Even introduce a nationwide insulation and efficiency project to reduce demand. Oh, but no, that's, that's clearly far too radical. James Spencer is MD of Portland Analytics. That's portland-analytics.co.uk. He has strong views on how far we can switch to renewables and how long we're going to have to rely on at least some fossil fuels. I asked if I could meet him and talk about his ideas. Along the way, he mentioned a hybrid power plant, a wind farm generating hydrogen. You can find more details at enertrag.com. That's E-N-E-R-T-R-A-G.com. Anyway, here's what we discussed. Right, let's start off with some introductions. First of all, I'm talking to James Spencer. James, you are... So, owner and managing director of Portland. Okay. Uh, just to be a brief um, background about what Portland does, what you do... Well, we're predominantly a, a seller of diesel fuel to the bus sector. We also get involved in the selling of biodiesel. We also uh, deal with government on what's called oil stocking regulations, and this is for resilience. So every country in Europe has to hold 90 days of oil. And uh, we are a broker for different businesses and countries who hold oil on behalf of other countries. And then we have an energy advisory business, which mainly looks after very large users of transport energy. And we look after the really big fleets um, in the UK. So Britain's biggest haulier, Eddie Stobart, two and a half thousand vehicles, we look after their uh, diesel, how they spend their diesel, why they buy their diesel, how much biodiesel they buy, and those kind of issues. We also look after people like go-ahead buses, who do most of the buses in London. So that's our advisory business, and that's the Portland Analytics business. And we do a lot of reports on energy pricing, forecasts of energy usage for, again, either private entities or uh, state-run bodies. You gave us a presentation recently at Café Scientifique, which is backed by the Yorkshire Philosophical Society, and the title of your presentation was Dreams versus Reality, the gap between what people want renewables to deliver and what they can deliver. And that caused uh, quite a lot of controversy. There were certainly a lot of questions and answers at the end of the session, and I thought it would be useful if I could talk to you and perhaps expand on some of the points. So if I summarise, you first of all presented three things which you identified as dreams. You then analysed in some detail a number of specific renewables, and then you drew your conclusion. As far as the dreams were concerned, you started off with um, electric vehicles, uh, made the point that they were going to actually consume more energy in their manufacture than they would actually use in their lifetime, which is an interesting statistic, I don't know. I think the issue with electric vehicles, um, and it's probably the most exciting area of kind of renewables, is that so much of the data available is where we are up until now. Um, in the, the, the processes of manufacturing, um, because of the, basically the electric battery, uh, have been incredibly energy intensive. But what is undoubtedly the case, and if you look at what's happening in the States coming out of, and he was mentioned in several times in the presentation, things like the Tesla car and all of these vehicles, 
manufacturing of electric batteries is a lot more efficient. The big rub is big vehicles because the manufacture of batteries for buses and trucks is still a big problem. Cars, if you look at the Nissan Leaf taking off, and Norway was mentioned in the presentation there, you know, the, the Nissan Leaf uh, is an incredible footprint in Norway. You know, it's some, Norway has sells something like 30% of electric cars in Europe. So yes, it's, it's a phenomenal it's, figure. It's because of the tax regime, isn't it? I guess it, I guess it must be, but I think we covered that. I mean, that is really one of the most effective ways to get renewables on the, you know, up and running yeah. using the tax regime. Um, so yeah, I think there's historically electric batteries for cars have been a problem. I mm -hmm. think that technology is improving all the time. Okay. We spoke about Norway, you pres presented Norway. Uh, I think you were taking, making the point that some people see Norway as the ideal situation and you made the point that really, yes, it's quite green in some ways. It's, that's because of its unique geography and you can't replicate that sort of thing. And incidentally, it's drilling in the Arctic. Well, I'm not sure it is still drilling in the Arctic because I believe the Parliament uh, banned that in June. Interesting. But um, they were arguing about where the Arctic starts and where it finishes, <laughs> you see. Well, if climate change continues, I think the Arctic will probably move move further up anyway. Well, so yes. that's maybe what they were using. But Yes, uh, <laughs> yes. I, I think it's a fair point that uh, Norway, with a small population and masses of hydro resources, is not something we're going to be able to replicate. And then you went on uh, to buy an effort... Buy a, I'll start again. Then you went on to bioethanol okay. and whether it would replace petrol. And you spoke specifically about Brazil. Yep. And again, I think it's fair to say that's another situation where it's a country with unique attributes, isn't it? It is a country with unique attributes, but in many ways it's a better uh, kind of benchmark for the world than Norway because of what you've said about Norway. And, you know, fundamentally it is easier to to implement uh, progressive policies in a country of four million people. I mean, you know, it's just, uh, and a country that's very rich to boot. I mean, and that point, yes, of course, much income from drilling for fossil fuels, but that's that's a bit of a, you know, a, a, that's, that's not the point. No, the point is it's just easier in small countries. So Brazil is a very good example, which is 150 million people, uh, growing economy. And here we have a, a yes, unique geography because of the nature and, and certainly unique climate. But the introduction of bioethanol such that basically every car in Brazil runs on, pretty well runs on ethanol, some of them up to 100%, others the in, um, in kind of mixtures, you know, maybe up to 50%, you know, is, is a real good example of it could be a lot worse. <laughs> you know, all of those people driving cars and car ownership in Brazil is going up, you know, it could just be 100% fossil fuels. Um, so, um, unfortunately, as Brazil's economy grows, their energy consumption also grows. But, yeah, maybe you have to take the small wins, and that is that it could be a lot worse if they weren't using ethanol. Okay, and then you went on to look at biofuels in general and in some detail. And I think your conclusion on that was it's a viable fuel. Yep. Uh, it's proven technology, but it's a very small sector of the market and a long way to go. Yeah, I think... Um, I think it's a, yes, I, I can't add any, I can't sum it up better than that. I, I think I'm probably pretty optimistic for biofuels. I think um, biodiesel particularly uh, has had a pretty bad um, rep. 
particularly um, with some of the targets that have been set in Europe, which have basically encouraged imports of biodiesel, which were definitely not sustainable. Um, that being said, you could take a realistic view, which is these mistakes are going to happen. And undoubtedly, second and third generation biofuels. And I read today that um, a company in Swindon, uh, which we have um, this technology, we're, we're aware of, it's called plasma technology, which is the breaking down of uh, household waste and making that into um, uh, into diesel. And it will be diesel rather than petrol because of the combustible value. Um, that's just got a three million, I think, or was it possibly more? But anyway, it's got a it's got a grant from the Green Investment Bank, which is the government uh, investment bank, as in uh, Green Environmental Investment Bank, and that's very very interesting. And so those are the kind of examples where the idea that biofuel has to be basically palm oil plantations or soil oil, which you know do have some big issues about use of land for fuel versus food. Uh, I think second and third generation biofuels have a big part to play. Uh, so yeah, I, I would say that's a, I'm optimistic about what biofuels can do, and I think realistically, in maybe twenty years, you'll see much higher portions of biofuels in in the sector. And in fact, it will be trucks and buses. It'll be commercial fleets that will lead the way. I think consumers. There'll always be kind of some consumers, as in Norway, with electric cars, but um, it'll be the big fleets that, if they're given tax incentives to run sustainable biofuels, and that's where the government policy um, comes in, you know, they have to make sure that the right type of biofuel is incentivized, because what happened before was any biofuel was allowed, the cheapest biofuel was therefore sourced, and that was the one that was being grown in, you know, palm plantations in Indonesia and then being imported. That is clearly an own goal. So as long as the government incentivizes the right kind of biofuels, I think you'll find big commercial users, such as Eddie Stobart, will be very quick to take that up. Right. Uh, and so I'd be quite optimistic about that. Consumers, they're a bit more of a difficult difficult beast. <laughs> yes, of course, Morrison sold biodiesel for a while, but uh, they've closed all those pumps down now. They did. Presumably that was the stuff coming from uh, dodgy sources, was it? Well, not all of it, but yes. I mean, the point was it could come from anywhere. Yes. And there was no yes. real... I mean, there's a company, a big bio, biofuel importer called Greenergy, uh, were the first to kind of introduce the concept of certification uh -huh. so that the biofuels was actually, you know, you could actually tell where this was coming from. Um, but such was the kind of if you like, the aggressive targets that were set, uh, it just became a matter of, you've just got to hit these percentages, so just get the biofuels from anywhere. So the whole certification kind of program went, went awry, really. Um, and the big problem is the same, same issue all of, these, uh, all of these renewables now face is the price of oil is low. And that is an absolute disaster for renewables. It's also a disaster for the oil companies, isn't it? Well, it is. And so, yeah, so you've got a kind of a, a yin and a yang, if, that, if I can use that very kind of cliche phrase. On the one hand, in the short term, this is actually quite good news because it means basically less fossil fuels are coming out of the ground um, because there's less incentive to do it because there's less returns. So if you go beyond the kind of fossil fuel argument, you know, all of the minerals that are being taken out of the ground, things like prices of copper, prices of precious metals, they're all absolutely 
flawed in price. So of course, people like Glencore, Hextrata, Anglo-American, they're all exploring less. So they're exploiting the minerals less, which is a good thing in the short term perhaps, but longer term, it's still bad because that low price just means that the alternatives are just too expensive. So compared, commercial, you know, commercially speaking, without tax subsidy. And if you, the Morrison's example is exactly that. Diesel has fallen massively in price, but biodiesel has stayed up here. Mm-hmm. So suddenly, without any tax incentive, the idea that you have to, because of course there's options, you know, you can put up to 10% into a car or an engine vehicle and retain the warranty. There's a minimum of 4% set by the government, but if the price is right, then they do 10%. But when the price is wrong, everything's back down to the minimum of 4%. And then there's also the fairly controversial area of buying certificates, whereby you can actually put 0% biofuels into the mix and buy certificates from someone else who's putting 8%, for example. But of course, that basically means that there's some people avoiding putting biofuels into the system at all. The, the, the rub of it all is if biofuel stays a high price and diesel stays a low price, basically people will do the minimum. Mm. 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 Wheels within wheels. I've never, never <laughs> appreciated that at all. If we move on then to other um, renewables, I'm just going to bracket uh, wind, solar and tidal together. And I think the problem that they share is intermittence. Yes. But uh, did you not overlook the potential for storage? Well, I, pr- I did because, again, I think that's a good uh, parallel with the, the cost and energy intensity of making electric batteries. Mm-hmm. Storage is massively leaping forward. But it doesn't have to be batteries, though, does it? Well... As not as a non, you know, I'm not a technical scientist in this area, so I think I highlighted in the presentation when someone asked me a question, I said, "Well, there we are. That's why I didn't talk about it." So yes, I mean, I would be more than, you know, I'd have to put my hands up and say I don't really know too much about storage other than batteries. My understanding was is that the, uh, in fact, it was you that made this point. In no, the, it wasn't. wasn't I it? think it was John Cosham actually. Right, it was, it was someone, and and I think I kind of said, "Yeah, well, I don't know." So maybe as part of this interview have a kind of education for me. So what are the alternatives for this intermittency, which to elaborate that point is, the wind doesn't always blow, the sun doesn't always shine. Tidal is a... a it's a, predictable, but it's... Um, yeah, I mean, Tidal, I think I, I made the point with Tidal. I think Tidal is a viable. I think, for example, when the when the Severn Estuary was, um, was built, a uh, Severn Bridge, the second crossing of Severn Bridge, the fact that we didn't put a Tidal down there is, it verges on criminal. You know, the engineering, the piles were in the ground, the whole, the whole structure was set up for a tidal barrage. And basically because of nimbyism, that didn't go ahead. And of course, that is a big issue for the green movement in general. There's far too much local interest and not enough big picture stuff. And the tidal barrage was preventable, uh, was prevented. And it's such an opportunity. And I can't ever see there being a tidal barrage now put there. And yet you were going through the, the whole process of putting in, let's call it an eyesore, because a road bridge, depending on mm. what you're like mm. looking at, is not natural. Uh, and they missed the point. So I think my point with Tidal was actually it's a, it is an effective route to generate electricity. But planning such as it is, 
and finances such that there are, I can't ever see, even with a really pro kind of aggressive environmental government, which feels, you know, just got feel, feels a long way off at the moment. Um, I can't ever see more than four or five ever being built in the UK, or mm. certainly next, let's say, for the next 50 years. Mm. And that's going to contribute very small amount of electricity. Yeah, yes. Um, but anyway, let's go back to the intermittency. So that's well, yes. Well, there are a number of things you can do. Sometimes, of course, you have surplus energy, maybe electricity. Um, pump storage, well, exists, but pump storage schemes depend on the landscape, and they're quite big and expensive. But um, you could use surplus energy to generate hydrogen. And if you did, then you could use the hydrogen when the wind's not blowing or the sun's not shining. Um, you can also um, use solar, not with, with PV panels, but by focusing mirrors on a point to get very high temperatures. Yeah. Um, and you can store the heat in something like um, brine. You get a very high thermal capacity, right? And that would be hot enough to boil water, so then you can run traditional steam turbines. Um, when again, when the sun's not shining, the, the, the idea of the hydrogen is already being trialed, isn't it? In Germany, is it? So, yeah. uh, yeah, and it's 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 one of the big energy providers with a big oil company, interestingly. And the reason the oil company, which is total, the reason the oil company is involved is because hydrogen is clearly a very tricky kind of product mm -hmm. so it's it's kind of very much sits in the domain of uh, hazardous hazardous goods obviously going back to the likes of the Lindenburg yeah. disaster um, but it is exactly that it is a wind farm north of Berlin I'll send you the details oh, yes. I've, I've got an article somewhere on it but it's a wind farm north of Berlin which effectively is not being used as a wind farm in a conventional sense just generating electricity and putting it straight into the grid. Um, it is being used to break water, producing hydrogen, obviously, <coughs> splitting, splitting water, you know, um, along these lines mm -hmm. of a consistent source of power, effectively, maybe not liquid fuel, but re creating gaseous or liquid fuels through wind power rather than generating turbines that generate electricity. Mm -hmm. So I send you the um, article, and there's quite a lot of money going into that um, for the reasons probably that you've just said is, is that the big issue with with wind is uh, its consistency. The other problem with wind, which we definitely have a big issue in the UK, much more so in Europe where there are just fundamentally more, more wind farms, there is a tremendous amount of opposition to windmills. It kind of staggers me how much opposition there is. Um, yeah, I suppose I understand the national parks argument, but this is beyond national parks. This is wind farms going up in, even in industrial places, are being hampered and slowed because there's so much opposition. Mm. I, I am always at a slight uh, loss as to that. Uh, not because I think they're fantastic things or anything else, it's just that uh, they're, they're not that ugly. <laughs> I suppose some of them is noise, is it not? Some of the opposition is noise, that if you live near there's this constant I think so. sound. I think so. If people saw energy bills coming down because of the generation of their electricity, then they would suddenly turn a blind eye to their hitherto objections. Because energy is privatised, therefore they don't see any benefit of having a wind farm 
overlooking their mm. their mm. community mm. just goes into the grid and they pay in their mind whether it's right or wrong they pay more for energy every year so why you know yes. what, benef- what benefit is there yeah yeah, uh, yeah. And, and of course that is exactly why community energy is absolutely um, key to solving this people need to see you know whether people deny are, are kind of capitalist deniers or they they would rather that the people just do it for the good of it people need to see a value and if people start seeing a value people will do it mm. and I think there was a really interesting debate in that uh, presentation about micro generation mm-hmm. clearly isn't going to solve your issues in big cities and it's not going to solve how you transport stobots of this world two and a half thousand vehicles bringing all the things that people take for granted now but micro generation has a has a big part I think think we went a bit far with the the, the homemade tidal power which you know I think one of the issues is is you need massive turbines because of the you know the the scale of the turbines required you need huge paddles and I think micro tidal generation but solar panels for sure mm. Even wind farms, you know, just small wind generators. Well, I, th- I think in general they're a bit discredited, aren't they, for not really generating anything. Um, a, a wind turbine on a domestic chimney will not work. I, I, I've heard that, and I, I can see why that would be the case. Mm. Mm. That being said, a guy made the great point. I don't know why every new house doesn't have at least fifty percent of the roof with solar panels. Of course, and the, you can make the roof itself. <coughs> Of solar panels, yeah. you know, you can get solar roofing now. Well, yes. it's naturally waterproof. Yes, <laughs> you know, yes, it's, it's glass. Yes. So yes. I, 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 but then again, I mean, you know, I, I do sit not, and I don't, I don't feel conflicted at all in terms of the opinions I have. I mean, I'm, I'm very much a believer that this has to be addressed, but I'm also a believer that you can't go back in life. Um, and. Uh, I did make a point and would make it here is, is that if you have a government that can't even put a tax on plastic bags, you know, what chance is there to get solar panels on roofs? Mm. I mean, you know, you mm. have to you have to sit in the reality which is okay, we can all want it to happen. You know, and, and the actually the only thing that has generated uh, any progress there is businesses themselves. Let's look at your conclusions. Um, you said first of all that only the so called vested interests fully understand the scale of the problem. Well, I think you could turn that round and say there are people with strong opinions who may be ill-informed. But, it, you know, I think there are people out there who are not part of the uh, energy industry yeah. but still have got some good ideas. Of course. I mean, I, I certainly wouldn't want anybody to conclude I was saying other than that. What I was more meaning is there's such cynicism, whether it's right or wrong, about the energy suppliers that they are deemed as incapable of providing a solution because of their vested interests. Mm-hmm. That there may be an element of truth in that, and of course, in somewhere like America, where this debate is absolutely, and we do have a number of not many, but we have some customers in North America, and this is like all things American, this is kind of this defines you as to what you are. You know, are you pro abortion or anti abortion? Are you pro gun laws or anti gun laws? Are you a denialist, you know, are you a denier of climate change or are you a believer? It completely um, kind of split, splits things. But if you kind of go beyond that, which is difficult, of course, because America is the biggest energy user in the world. But if you um, look at the, the major players in energy, you can't have a solution without them. 
because they're the only ones that actually understand, for example, issues such as baseload production, issues of to, you know, how much fuel is used. Not because Eddie Stobart don't want to use tons and tons of diesel for the sake of it. They use that because we all want fresh food at nine o'clock in the morning. We want pipes delivered so that we can go to B&Q and build ourselves a conservatory. It's because the consumer demands it. There was lots of opinion, not lots of opinion, but you know that there was. There is obviously the view of you know what do you do about rampant consumerism, but that's definitely where I go to the other side because fundamentally, rampant consumerism is not that easy to stop because it's the individual choice that we all have. Um, so I, I suppose that was my point about vested interests: is that as long as they're viewed as the enemy, it kind of makes a solution very difficult. Okay, okay. Well, there's a number of points I want to pick up on your conclusions, and one I want to come back to, um, and I, I think I agree, all renewables have their part to play, there's no silver bullet. Yeah, fair enough. Meaningless targets only hinder progress. Fair point. Um, energy security is a big block to renewables growth. Well, in two, uh, there are two sides to that. Energy security, um, it ticks that box insofar as we're not importing the energy. The wind comes and the sun comes. But I understand the intermittence, uh, the security on a day-to-day and minute-to-minute basis, uh, that, that's, that can yeah, be Yeah, I think there's, a, there's, a, there's a, a more interesting point than that even, which is energy security, the best thing for energy security is just long-term energy security is best served by renewables. If you have a balanced energy portfolio, then you have very, very good energy resilience. If you're only, present, you know, only producing power and mobility through basically fossil fuels, diesel, or you know, fuel and gas, you are exposed. Mm-hmm. The issue is in the short term, you take away that capacity. You know, we can all look to a situation of 25 years and say that's the, that's where we want to be with this balanced portfolio. We're no longer importing. I mean, you know, the situation with gas mm-hmm. in the UK is mm-hmm. absolutely critical. I mean, we are now importing 70% almost of our gas because the North Sea gas is, is going down. Of that 70%, 90%, so 90% of the 70% is coming from Qatar, Algeria. As much as that? I yeah, thought it was, it, I, that must have gone up it's, dramatically. It's mass, sorry, I'm talking about seaborne imports. I know, yes. Yeah, so not, because we do get gas from Norway via the grid. Yes, of course, so but I thought seaborne imports were only about 20%. No, that's, well, so I need to check my figures. What I do know is 90% of the seaborne imports are coming from these countries. So rather rather than maybe relying on the stats, the point is we are relying on potentially unreliable sources for our gas. So in the long run, this balanced portfolio is key. In the short term, it takes a brave government to kind of turn their back on heavily relying on fossil fuels because it's so reliable for the generation of power. And I think that's a bit bit like the previous issue of the short term value of low oil prices is that people are exploring less but the long-term disbenefit is is that renewables are you know no longer commercially viable to a lot of people this is kind of a similar idea that there's a long term and a short term that are slightly at odds with each other you started off your presentation by saying that you were convinced that climate change is real and that man is partially responsible for it in other words by using fossil fuels and creating greenhouse gases um, but talking about a balanced mix, I mean, do you foresee that we will actually decarbonise the economy? The target is to decarbonise it, well, the government 
80 percent by 2050. Other people say it's got to be 100 percent by 2050. Do you see us getting to either of those targets? No, I'm afraid. Because okay. just simply because we took that is a space of 30 years. Yeah. I think it would be a tremendous success if you could get 50 percent decarbonised by 2050. I think to do that you would have, have you would have to have a very large consensus you would have to have very bold government moves and you would have to have commercial conditions that were favorable i think 80 percent is i'm not saying it's pie in the sky i think one of the things that you always get with these things is why not of course it can be done but it's equivalent you know in my mind of saying you know of course you can have world peace it's it's got to be vested in the practical with the right you know, if everybody spent all of their money and focus on this it could be done but you're not going to get that consensus but on the other hand the scientific community is saying if we don't do it then we are going to get beyond the tipping point there are some who say we're beyond the tipping point already some who say we're already beyond it, uh, already beyond it now uh, I, yes I, impossible to argue with that and I think that's the whole point about the scientific community I, I think you know, it is impossible to argue with the science something has to be done but, but things get done step by step and yeah, I think it's got to be, a, by all means, a target. I think it's uh, it more needs to be done. That that I think everybody can agree on. I still have big pessimism about eighty percent by twenty fifty. Which means, that in fact, we won't do it because this appears to be our last chance. Um, yeah, I don't. I don't necessarily believe that. Actually, I don't believe it's the last chance. I believe I have an inherent faith in the innovation of man. But yeah, but you, you yourself said you're not a scientist, and it's the scientists, and it yeah. is the vast majority of scientists who are standing up and, and demonstrating the evidence which shows that we are getting awfully close to uh, runaway climate change. So, you know, you yeah. said climate change can realistically only be slowed, not stopped. I think you talk about dreams versus reality. I think that's a dream. It can be slowed. If we actually stopped carbon emissions today, climate change wouldn't stop. We have set things well, in motion true. already. So, it, well, I, I, I think I, I accept most of what you say about how all the things that we rely on are bolted on to the oil economy at the moment. Hmm. But unless we start from first principles and consumerism, as you mentioned, and changing attitudes, then we are going to be locked into something which is going to destroy us, aren't we? Well, I don't see it like that, but I, I, I don't see it like that for no other reason that I just am a natural optimist and, you know, I believe that, you know, technology and science comes up with incredible things. And I also have a, um, a view which is unfortunate, but I also believe it's how human nature works, mm. is that people work best when they're really up against it. Mm. And you may well see a massive acceleration of these programs when it really is beginning to be quite clear you know more than just the scientists yes you know clearly you know I've I said this in the presentation and, and the, the elephant in the room in all of this is overpopulation well I just you, well your presentation on your you know why seven billion people want what you want to get I mean it, yes seven billion people is a tricky one uh, and it's going to be 10 billion so by 2050 I think the projections are it's going to be something like 11 billion because it's 2035 is, uh, is 10 billion it varies it varies it's very very difficult to to predict I, th I think generally it's only about nine by 2050 I think we've got to be very careful that we don't just focus on population mm -hmm. uh, we've got to look at these other issues and population 
we won't actually uh, solve that by just cutting the birth rate because there are two things that are happening with population. One is that the population is increasing its expectations. By 2030, it's expected that two and a half billion, which is over a third of the world's population, will expect a Western lifestyle. Yeah, absolutely. And the other thing is longevity. It's life expectancy. <laughs> that is what's increasing the population as much as the birth rate. Well, and there's, there's all kinds of... Uh I mean, but then this goes down the fatalistic route of, you know, well, nothing can be done because these things are so difficult to control. But if you look at the kind of, you know, the consumption of, of meat, you know, so yeah. I'm someone who tries to have a, you know, a few meat-free days. I mean, the thought of going vegetarian is just not a choice I'm willing to make. Yeah. However, I definitely try and have meat-free days because, you know, there's no question that has huge effects. You know, just the, the livestock implications and the methane generated by mm. by these animals. Um and yet meat consumption's rocketing up. So, you know, there's so many kind of uh, things, but then it, I just, change doesn't happen with revolution. Change happens step by step. You know, it's, it's, a, it's, an, it's a inner feel I have for everything. I think you have to lead by example. I think that's, the West still has, it's still the wealthiest, it's still the most technologically innovative. It should lead. We can't take the view, well, what's the point? Because China's 1.5 billion people and India's, you know. We have to set in motion the technology for a greener, decarbonized, whatever that means in percentage term. And, you know, from my perspective, as someone who's, you know, a business person and basically is in business to be successful and to make profits, there's money to be made in this technology. I mean, that's, that's the key. I mean, it really has to be viewed. I mean, Elon Musk, the guy who's setting up the power walls, I mean, let's be clear, I mean, you know, he has a vision, but he's also very keen on making money. You he's know, very he's good a, at it too. The classic kind of Californian uh, entrepreneurial kind of uh, feel to it. So, um, you know, probably what's needed is a massive spike in the oil price, you know, because one thing that will get people really innovating and decarbonising is if the oil price goes up to $300 a barrel. Okay, well, it's collapsed, uh, I understand, because Saudi is overproducing and they want to do that because they want to bankrupt the fracking in America and Correct. they want to bankrupt the tar sands in Canada. Yeah. And they want to do that because and they, they want, want to keep America in the Gulf to protect them. And they want, well, and, and it's also tied into they want to bankrupt Iran because oh. Iran is clearly a sheer population. Sunni, uh, Saudi is Sunni. And uh, this is massively hurting Iran. Why, so, I mean, you know, as a big kind of geopolitical kind of conclusion, why are Iran suddenly at the table? Albeit Israel are very unhappy that we've accepted it at all, but they've completely toned down their nuclear program. It's because they've run out of money, because right. oil prices are so low. So when everybody's been bankrupted, apart from the Saudis, <laughs> do you see the oil price coming back up? I think so, yeah. I mean, I think uh, I take your point about the overpopulation isn't the solution, isn't the kind of answer, and addressing that doesn't give you all of the solutions because of the raising standards of living expectations. Standards of living expectations. Um, however, overpopulation does tend to indicate that oil prices will go up, uh, just because in the short term people will use more oil. So yes, yeah. I think that will happen. Uh, wouldn't want to go in uh, on the radio and uh, forecast this and say it's a good thing and certainly wouldn't be one quoted by the Daily Mail but fundamentally <laughs> the oil price going up is the best thing that can happen for renewables. And how soon, how soon is that likely to happen? Uh, well, um, 
I kind of gave up on predicting oil prices about two years into my career so because uh, I got it wrong so often. Um, I think uh, you've probably got lower oil prices for another 12, 18 months. But I think if I looked at a 10-year, 20-year prognosis, uh, I think oil prices will steadily rise. But what that probably means, going back to what do we do about the renewable side of things, is that I don't think we can wait for that. I think it will be something that will help. They have to be encouraged. And that goes back to Western Western governments, Western policy. Uh, there has to be... Uh, probably more inte- more intelligent incentivization of uh, of of green green energy, right. but this is happening. I mean, whether it's happening fast enough, but you know, you're talking about the. It's event. not happening in the UK, is it? <sighs> exactly the opposite. No, no. Well, this is this is correct, but then they then you're back to the reality of we have a democratic system, and rightly or wrongly, they voted for a government that is less, despite all of his early claims that he'd like to, you know on climate mm. change, I mean, that really has been dropped. So. Well, we could talk for hours about democracy. I won't go there at this stage. Yes. Can I ask you one final question? Of course you do. Do you have children? I do. I have and are, you, are you confident for their future? I'm very confident. Absolutely. Thank you. James, <laughs> thank you very much indeed for that. James Spencer from Portland Analytics. Do you agree with what he said? Is he being realistic when he rules out an 80% reduction in UK carbon emissions by 2050? What do you think? If you want to share your opinions, insights and ideas, bring them on. It doesn't matter where in the world you are, we can record an interview on Skype. Just get in touch. Mail at anthony-day.com That's all for another week. Another week closer to COP21, the Paris Climate Conference. In fact, it's only 65 days to the Climate March in London to mark the conference opening. We certainly live in interesting times. I'm Anthony Day. That was the Interesting Sustainable Futures Show. Have a good week. No idea what next week's topic will be, but you can be sure that next Friday or thereabouts will bring another episode of the Sustainable Futures Show. Till then, bye for now. Bye for now.